3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Ines. Good morning. And good morning, Leela, who is currently shadowing me, doing some paneling training. So Leela will be on the mic later for our headlines. I feel like um, I could do some creepy breathing over your shoulder, Priya. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. Um, Please feel free to breathe creepily over my shoulder. Um, Good morning to friend of the show, Central Heating. Uh, We love Central Heating. It is a chilly morning, folks. I hope everybody out there is staying as warm and toasty as possible. Um, Climate change. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Climate change. You're hearing it more and more. (laughs) Um, So we have a big show as per usual. Uh, Maybe I'll jump into our rundown. So first up, we're going to hear a recording of Yinja Barney and Narlama woman Kayleen Daniel on the protests at Murujuga on the Burup Peninsula to protect rock art from destruction. As Australia faces a gas crisis, Indigenous communities fear millennia-old sacred sites will be collateral damage in the rush for fresh supplies, and Woodside Petroleum has now received state and Commonwealth approval for a further $16.5 billion expansion known as the Scarborough Offshore Gas Project, which includes the expansion of the Pluto facility called Pluto 2 in the Pilbara. So approximately 80 Save Our Songlines supporters staged a march for country in July to protest at the expansion of the uh, the natural gas industry in Murujuga. So we'll be hearing a little clip from there. Um, After that, we'll be joined by Chris Goff, who's the executive director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA, who's going to join us to talk about the opening of Australia's first fixed-site pill and drug testing site, CanTest Health and Drug Checking Service. And CAMA is the alcohol, tobacco, and other drug consumer organization for the Australian Capital Territory. Such an important interview. I cannot wait. Uh, an Australian first. Um, and then following on from this, we're going to be speaking to Nadia Gavin from Harm Reduction Victoria, um, who is the FUSE project coordinator um, at Harm Reduction Victoria, uh, supporting peer workers with living experience who work in mainstream Victorian um, alcohol and other drugs harm reduction services. And Nadia has been involved in the drug user movement and harm reduction sector for over 20 years and is passionate about drug law reform, grassroots activism, ending stigma and discrimination for people who use drugs. She joins us today to speak on the importance of living experience peer workers um, in the space and challenges and stigmas they face. Yeah, really important that we're doing this pretty exciting uh, back-to-back harm reduction, harm minimization special. So uh, kudos to Inez. Uh, friend of the show, Inez, who was very, very helpful in, um, you know, pulling this, pulling this together and thinking about how we coordinate that. Um, so after that, we're going to be hearing from Michael Stanton, president of Liberty Victoria, who speaks with us about Victoria's mandatory minimum sentencing regime in light of its recent condemnation by justices on the state's court of appeal. Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project is also hosting an event uh, called Police Panopticon, zooming in on the use of body-worn cameras by Victoria police officers on Tuesday, the 26th of July. So we'll be discussing that as well. 
Can't wait for that one too. And then lastly, we'll be joined by Jeremy Poxon, um, who is a anti-poverty advocate and organiser with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union about the recently introduced points-based system for people on the Job Seeker program. Oh, workforce. Oh, workforce, workforce Australia. Australia. Absolute well, hell. Yes, absolute hell. And I'm sure that uh, Jeremy will be telling us all <laughs> about that. So stay tuned and we'll come back to you shortly with the news headlines. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing These are the news headlines for Thursday the 21st of July. Kurdish refugee Mustafa Azimatabar is taking legal action against the federal government this week, arguing that the use of hotels as alternate places of detention is unlawful. Mr. Azimatabar was detained on Manus Island for six years before arriving in Australia under Medivac laws. He was then kept for 14 months in hotel detention before being released in 2021. Mr. Azimatabar refers to the hotels as torture centres and described how he was unable to open his window for fresh air for more than a year. If successful, this case will challenge the legality of the federal government's use of hotels to detain asylum seekers and refugees. In an update on community action to, pro- uh, to protect Murjaga in Western Australia, following their plea to the United Nations last week, First Nations Marathunara custodians are seeking urgent intervention from the federal government to stop works by the Perdamon fertilizer plant. The works on Murjaga, also known as the Borup Peninsula, were approved last week by the state government and include removal of several sacred rock art sites. The Marathunara custodians are again asking for works to halt until an emergency assessment of cultural heritage impacts can take place. Also in headlines this week... A recent report released by Oxfam shows that food costs inflation in some East African countries is now nearly five times more than the global average. Skyrocketing food prices in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia are caused by the worst drought in decades and exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, which has affected global food and fertiliser production. The report also notes that comparatively, the collective wealth of food and agribusiness billionaires has increased by $380 billion over the last two years, pointing to what Oxfam says is is a fundamentally broken and exploitative global food system. Aid agencies say that less than two weeks' worth of food billionaires' wealth gains would fully fund emergency aid for East Africa age that is currently severely underfunded. And finally, in headlines, more than 100 people marched through Perth last week in protest of the decision by WA Corrections to move 20 children from the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre to a maximum security adult prison. 
Youth detention centres in Australia have a disproportionately high percentage of First Nations children incarcerated, and in Banksia Hill, 74% are First Nations children. The National Suicide Prevention and Recovery Project said grandparents of children subject to the transfer have reported the children have been severely self-harming. Advocates say that the transfer of children to an adult prison is a violation of human rights and have called for WA Corrections to bring in elders and respected members of the community to provide psychosocial support and address these children's concerns. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 21st of July. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. I just want to add on to that, yeah, absolutely shameful um that final headline and really encourage people to uh yeah to be uh, you know to keep up to date with uh with updates that are coming out from activists in the area i know megan krakauer is doing some excellent work there and uh, there's going to be a protest today in borloo um against this this transfer and so i really encourage people to you know keep up to date on social media um there Megan Krakauer is providing updates about that, but I think there are other folks as well that are raising the alarm. And I think it's just so important to not let this slide. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about raising the age, and yet these young people, some as young as 14 years old, um, are being moved into an adult maximum security prison. And it is just horrifying. Um, Something else that I wanted to to mention is... um, I guess the need for more public conversation and destigmatization of monkeypox because there have been cases in Australia, um, you know, we need people to be watching for symptoms. Um, this is from Joshua Badge on Twitter, but watching for symptoms if you've recently returned from overseas, attended any large parties or sex on premises venues. And if you have any symptoms, you know, please head down to your GP or local sexual health clinic. Monkeypox is not a sexually transmitted disease, and I think people really need to be very clear on that. It is transmitted by physical proximity, and, you know, there are a variety of ways that it can be transmitted. But I think um, there needs to be a destigmatization, but also a real amping up of the public health response in, in so-called Australia. You know, seeing gay and bisexual men, like members of our community, um, be disproportionately affected by this is, you know, sort of directly related to the stigmatizing and, and warehousing of these kinds of issues. So another thing to be aware of, and hopefully we can bring you an interview on that in the coming weeks. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. So next up, we will be hearing a song from uh, the duo Special Feelings, which is an experimental project of Naomi Robinson and Polly Pearl Green. Uh, They have recently released their debut single, Curbside Finds, which we're about to hear. Um, 
It is full of wonky beats, jazzy chords and unique experimental sounds. You can catch them tonight at 9pm at the Evelyn, so get down there. Thank you. 
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was the track Curbside Finds by Special Feelings, who are playing tonight at the Evelyn at 9 p.m. So get down there if you can. Um, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now going to hear a recording of Yinjibarndi and Narlama woman Kayleen Daniel on the protest at Murujuga on the Bura Peninsula to protect rock art from destruction. So I've just clarified that there are two separate proposals that are going forward. The one that we raised in the headlines as well as, um, you know, the proposal for Woodside receiving state and Commonwealth approval for a $16.5 billion expansion known as the Scarborough Offshore Gas Project, which includes the expansion of the Pluto facility called Pluto 2. And as Australia faces a gas crisis, Indigenous communities are fearing that millennia-old sacred sites will be collateral damage in the rush for fresh supplies. So this recording was taken from a uh, rally in the Pilbara where approximately 80 Save Our Songline supporters staged a march for country in July. Hello, my name is Kayleen Daniel. My mother is Tupsi Daniel, she's an Indian body. My, my late father, Mr. Daniel, he's a Naruma. So, Ms. Daniels, you've been coming out here, I imagine, for most of your life, m- walking and marching on this country and trying to protect it. How does it feel to see everyone gathered out here today like this on such a beautiful day on Murujuga? Well, I've yeah, been here a few years ago with my, with my family doing marches. But this is one of the biggest marches before what we did, you know, with um, Farah, the Farah mob, basically. So... So this is, I would say, the biggest group we had, you know, for the march. Yeah. So this, this is the biggest march that's been out here. Yeah. Here, so far, yeah. I see how much, how much, how much people came to march and to protest for this country, you know. Yeah. Which is really, really shocking to see that our how much 
really cares about this country, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and what is it that you've been fighting for and marching for in the past and here today? What's, what's the message that you're trying to send to people, to the government or to industry or to, to the community? What are, what are you wanting to say? Protesting and protecting this country was bad. Protecting the rock art as, a, as our, our library, our stories on stone that, that brings out about this place. Because um, this is significant, you know, and because being, being a person who's been coming out here, even protecting this country, knows about this, what, well, my late, what my late father has told me and taught me, see? Like that. So I'll carry on what he used to do. Not only for me, but my other family members as well. Yeah. So what was the fight that he was fighting out here in days gone by? Your father, rest in peace. Was, was he opposed to industry out here at the time as well? Yeah, the industry, opposed to the industry. Um, before it was the Woodside one at the time, he used to protest against that, sit amongst the rock cart, you know, and, and was protected, you know, with the Aboriginal flag at the time. There's a, there's a photo of him doing that. Yeah. But I'm... Um, well, I must with habit there somewhere that of him doing that, you know. Yeah. And so, as as a Yinjibandi Nalama person, what does it what does it mean to to have industry so close to the rock art? What's the sort of what's the impact on on your people and your your family when when you see the the damage that's being done? How does it how does it make you feel as a as a cultural woman with with such a strong connection on Murujuga? Well, I don't. Well, when I was a ranger, there's a like a this is uh, I don't know what it's called. That how industry destroyed that, how it's infecting it, affecting the rock art. Um, yeah. But industry do does you know because like I said earlier, how they made that K that cage with all the rock art in it just to put everything all aside and then cage it, you know. It was wrong, you know. Would that happen and don't want that to happen again, you know? What what's the impact when that happens on on your people? It impacts the people, our culture, um, you know, not only for my own family, for everyone else here, you know, we don't want to see them things. And they should just leave the rock out on where it is, you know? Not to touch it, just leave it as it is. So, yeah. So what, what would you like to see the government or industry do from now? What do you, what do you want? What, what needs to happen going forwards from here? Um, from here, just listen to the people, listen to what we say, you know, and... You know, this is why we protest, to try to protect the country, protect it, you know. As I know, we've been doing all this, you know, all my life, my family, seeing the impact, and they have to just leave the rock out as it is, leave the water as it is.
No more industry. We don't want any industry. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Yinja Barndi and Narlama woman Kayleen Daniel on the protest at Murjaga on the Burrup Peninsula to protect rock art from destruction in the wake of Woodside receiving state and Commonwealth approval for a further $16.5 billion expansion known as the Scarborough Offshore Gas Project. So really concerning. And please keep uh, up to date with concerns coming out of the Burrup Peninsula because this is a situation that's ongoing. As we mentioned before, there are two separate proposals for development there and community are really fighting to save sacred rock art from destruction and get government to do another um, yeah, another assessment of cultural heritage. Um, we're going to go into a track now. This is a new one from Jess War, Fell in Love, and Jess War also has a, a, a mixtape, an album, a mixtape coming out on the 23rd of September. So keep an eye out for that. But for now, let's hear that first track released from mixtape, uh, mixtape Fell in Love by Jess War. track fell in love by Jess War and folks keep an eye out on Jess War's social media for the new album coming out on the 23rd of September really exciting and can't wait to hear it you're listening to Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM Come 3CR radio from fundraiser 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday 23rd of July Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism and the future. 
Zelda Grimshaw from Block Ave Australia, Dr Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall, and Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends Liz Thomas and Maxine Vink. Followed by Sooty Owls. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, capitalism and the future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event. 3CR fundraiser. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. Tram 11 will get you there. Stop 30. $10 solidarity. No one turned away. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Wick Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The Forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Chris Goff, Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA, who's joining us to talk about the opening of Australia's first fixed-site pill and drug testing site. That is CanTest and... Uh, sorry, CanTest Health and Drug Checking Service. And CAMA is the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Consumer Organization for the ACT. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to start off with, um, because we are based in Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about Karma and the guiding principles of your organization? Sure. Uh, I've got a little bit of an echo. Just hang on a second. You sound fine um, on our end. Uh, I'm just checking. No, I've still got a bit of an echo, but I'll try and uh, got, work, work through it. So the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy uh, is uh, its like a sister organization of uh, Harm Reduction Victoria, which you guys have down there. So we, um, we all have lived experience of uh, drug and alcohol uh, use or drug and alcohol when our drug and alcohol use has become problematic in seeking drug treatment services. Um, so we run a, a drop-in centre in Canberra and people, uh, people who are homeless or people who are um, marginalised can come in and uh, it's a safe space and then we can help them navigate through the healthcare system, in particular the drug and alcohol system. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I think um, 
It is really exciting to hear that CanTest is being launched this week as well, uh, which I think just supplements some of the, the excellent work that you've already been doing. And CanTest is Australia's first fixed site pill and drug testing site, which opened its doors in the ACT this week. Now, before we jump into the facil- into how the facility works, can you take us through some of the history of pill testing in Canberra since that first trial occurred at Groove in the Moo in April 2018? And what's the process been to get to this point? Sure. Um, so, I mean, like it, like any new service, it's been uh, it's it, it's been uh, it's been a fight to get here, um, and because it's it's new and and it's been uh, it's been it's taken some courageous politicians and some courageous mm. advocates to get here. But um, so first, uh, so as you said, in the, firstly, there was a 2018 uh, pill testing trial which was pushed by. Uh, Dancewise and Harm Reduction Australia and Pill Testing Australia, which is a consortium of groups. Uh, and then they did an, uh, an internal uh, evaluation, which showed um, really some pretty interesting findings, essentially that a lot of people who, uh, a lot of people who came to the service around one-fifth of participants reported being told by staff uh, that the test revealed a substance known to be associated with significant harms and mm-hmm. deaths and that 12% of those participants were not sure uh, if they had not been advised to do so. So the majority reported that they were actually not going to use those pills. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, so from there we, we, des- we decided really to, to push on. And then in 2019, again, it went uh, into the Groove and the Moo Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time it was uh, independently evaluated by the ANU. And again, similar, similar kind of findings where we had... Uh, um, where we had a percentage of people coming through with what they thought was ecstasy and it turned out to be quite a dangerous substance and they were able to get rid of that substance and not go through the the hell of having an experience mm-hmm. which they didn't want. The other thing was that we got to give people a lot of information about their health and well-being and about the onset of these drugs, how long it takes um, once they had, once they knew, for example, that they had something like MDMA, we were able to give them information about how to use it safely, um, how long it took uh, for the duration of the drug, how long it took to actually come on so that we don't have people who are dropping a pill and then five minutes later nothing's happening and they're, they're dropping six and then suddenly, you know, they're, they're in an overdose situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, they were the kinds of some of the findings. And then, of course, the wonderful thing that is COVID hit us and, and really, um, uh, we were unable to do anything at the, at the, uh, there were no festivals. So, so we did kind of switch out our advocacy and start to think, well, hang on, you know, people are still using drugs and what does drug use look like? Not, not only during COVID, but what, but what about after COVID? And so this was this has been on the government agenda. We have an excellent uh, government in the ACT. It's a uh, um, it's a, it's a Greens Labor government. So, you know, so very much uh, very supportive of of harm reduction and harm minimisation, which which is the Australian federal government's um, uh, drug policy. Um, but but unfortunately, you know, these things are very political. Mm. So it takes very courageous politicians to get out there and say anything except for say no to drugs, which yeah. which we know which we know doesn't work in a lot of situations. And yeah. so finally, finally, it was um, it's it came to be um, in in 2022, and we've spent uh, the last kind of year preparing and and building it, and and finally it was opened uh, yesterday politically, and uh, tomorrow 
for the public. Excellent. Yeah. And I think um, it really speaks to the, you know, the need to orient ourselves away from like a zero tolerance drug policy, because obviously that's not worked and people are going to people are going to take drugs. I think that's just, um, you know, that's just understood in, in social environments for, for personal recreational use for various you know reasons. And um, it's about making sure that people are able to understand whether there are any unexpected substances, um, you know, whether there are any concerns, because I know that there have been traces of fentanyl, for example, um, which people have not expected um, in, in various pills that they have accessed. And so it does, um, you know, it, it's a really invaluable service and, and support for people who do choose to take drugs. Um, so now, how does the CanTest service itself function and who can access it? And also, what are some of the changes that you hope to see with the establishment of a fixed site testing service rather than having those trials at festivals? Okay, cool. So, um, so what will happen is it, it'll, 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 it, it, yeah, it, so it's open, uh, only six hours a week at the moment. Uh, one shift is in the middle of the day on a Thursday from, from nine to one and one shift is on Friday night from six till nine. Um, the, the reason that we've chosen those shifts is we're hoping to access different types of people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. So uh, on Thursday, uh, it's set up in the middle of the city uh, in a health building. So uh, so you walk into the main health centre and then it's just like you can, you know, you can go to, to the sexual health centre or you can go to the needle and syringe program or uh, you can go to, um, you know, the breast screening proje- uh, program or you can go to CanTest. Uh, so, so it's very, um, very discreet, mm. and and we're hoping on that Thursday morning to catch people who might be using the needle and syringe program. They might be using uh, heroin or methamphetamine. Uh, they might they might be dependent on those and going in quite regularly to to pick up syringes to use. Uh, and so we'll be able to have because there's a nurse on site as well. So it's, mm. a, it's it's actually a, a health facility as well. So so we're hoping to access that population and work out whether there's any fentanyl within there within the, the drugs that they're using as you as you mentioned for example but also Canberra has quite an uh, quite a an up and down drug market we get a uh, our drug market is supplied by both Melbourne and Sydney mm. and so somebody who might uh, you know be using uh, uh, heroin from one source and then have to change to another, you know, now has the opportunity to come in and, and test their heroin to make sure that it's that it's not um, too strong for them mm. So because we can also check the purity and things like that. The Friday night we're hoping to get people who are coming in who might be planning ahead for the weekend or might be going out to a club or a pub um, and so, you know, uh, mainly, and, and also it's near the, the ANU, so tar- targeting people, uh, targeting uh, students and, and people who are coming in to, to kind of party. So the way that it works is that uh, you come in and uh, the first thing you do is you sign a waiver uh, and the waiver is a form which just says, I understand that, that you know, that, that there is no safe drug use um, and that, you know, we're not indemnifying you against taking drugs. It's, um, and then you just you sign the waiver and you put it in a, a sealed box uh, and then from there we take some, it's anonymous, take uh, anonymous details, um, some demographics, some basic demographics, mm. and then you tell us what you think the drug is, and then uh, we'll walk you up. And that introduction is done by a, a peer support worker, a peer educator. 
So that's someone from Karma who has experience of using drugs uh, and who knows um, knows a little bit about it and, and knows how confronting it can be mm. to come into a service, especially with drugs on you. Um, and, and so really building that trust with the community. Uh, and then from there, the peer worker will take you up to, to the chemist to analyse uh, your substance, whatever that it is that you've brought in. Uh, and I know there's some really big words. So, so we've got a Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy Unit, an FTIR, and an Ultra Performance Liquid Chromatography UPLC machine. Uh, and so that'll be able to tell you in most cases what the two main substances in your pill is uh, and potentially, depending on what you bring in, uh, how pure it is, whether it's low, medium or high purity. So from there, once you've got this name of the drug again, you'll go back either to a peer worker or to uh, a professional drug and alcohol um, practitioner uh, who can then take you through some of the harm reduction uh, information about how to use it more safely or, or if it's something that you haven't expected what it is that you've got mm. and what the consequences of taking it will be. Uh, and at that stage, we've also got a disposal bin for people. And obviously, the main message is, listen, there really is no... The safest way no, to go forward is not to take your drug, right? Mm -hmm. But if you are going to take it, then um, let's make sure that you, you have the best time you can and that you come home safely. Yeah. You know? And so, so those are going to be the kind of messages in terms of making sure you keep hydrated. If it's an opiate, making sure that you've got naloxone there. Mm -hmm. So we'll be giving out and training people in how to use naloxone, the um, drug that reverses opioid overdose, um, as well as checking for fentanyl, making sure that there's no fentanyl in your drugs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. that sounds, it just sounds so brilliant and forward thinking. And it makes me wish that we had these services widely available, you know, running 24 hours a day around the country, because I think so much of this is really about saying, you know, if you, if you do, if you are going to be using drugs, you just want to be as well informed as you possibly can be about, um, you know, what's in what you're taking and um, how to take care of yourself as you go through that process of, you know, ingesting a drug um, so, or, or injecting a drug. So um, I think just coming to wrapping up, I'm, I understand the ACT has also recently made a commitment to decriminalizing personal possession of, quanti of small quantities of some drugs, uh, including cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine and MDMA. And I'm just wondering how Karma would like to see this legislation be developed and to eventually look. Right. Um, great question. So, yes, and Karma's been heavily involved in advocating for the best possible drug decriminalisation law reform that we can. And so, so look, eventually, I, I don't think we'll get it this time round. I think this time they're going to go for what's called a simple drug offence notice, which is like a, a fine-based system which has police discretion involved. That's, that's what's on the cards. And, um, you know, that's, that's a step in the right direction. But what Karma would like to see eventually is something like what uh, uh, Canberra did, the ACT did with the cannabis drug law reforms, which was, to to to, to Karma's mind, a, a true form of decriminalising uh, personal drug use, where you're able to they 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 did a what's called a, an over 18 exemption, which means that cannabis is illegal. Uh, uh, unless you're over 18. So everybody over 18, uh, you know, you can possess up to 50 grams of cannabis and, and grow two plants. 
you know, so, so of course it's not good criminalising our youth, um, but uh, and for them there's there's simple a, a simple cannabis offence notice that's in place. Um, but so we'd like to see something like that going forward, mm. an exemption for people. The problem is, of course, that we've got this entire system that's criminalised drug use in in every aspect of our lives, and yeah. and and drug criminalisation itself has a lot of harms associated to it, like yeah. stigma and discrimination and uh, marginalisation and and social isolation, and uh, you know, so so small steps, but we'd like eventually to see. Uh, uh, an over-18 exemption for yeah. personal amounts of drug use in the ACT. Uh, this time, I think we'll probably get a simple drug offence notice and a, and a fine instead of a jail term, which is which is a step in the right direction. And, and if yeah. not, we'll, there'll also be, uh, if not a fine, then there'll be an, an option to to go to a to a drug treatment service to have like an interview uh, and to to give information uh, yeah. as opposed to that fine. So, so. it's a, definitely a step in the right direction, but of course, you want to see much much broader change there. And I can imagine, obviously, that the uh, concern around decriminalizing possession definitely relate to people's safety and ability to use drug testing services. So really keen to see how that continues to develop. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us and all the best with CanTest. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that was Chris Goff, Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA, who joined us to talk about the opening of Australia's first fixed-site pill t- and drug testing site, CanTest and Health, uh, sorry, CanTest Health and Drug Checking Service in the Australian Capital Territory. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Now we are joined by Nadia Gavin, who is the FUSE Project Coordinator at Harm Reduction Victoria, supporting peer workers with living experience who work in mainstream Victorian AOD harm reduction services. Nadia's been involved in drug user movements and the sector for over 20 years and is passionate about drug law reform, grassroots activism, human rights, and ending stigma and discrimination for people who use drugs. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Good morning, how are you today? I am good. Um, I know we have so much to talk about in terms of 
people who have lived or living experience and, you know, being peer workers in the space. Would you mind talking about how uh, high production peer workers will use their personal experiences in a way that fosters understanding and connection and why they're so important specifically to the AOD high production space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just going to take speaker because it seems to be, you know, feeding back. Um, but harm reduction peer workers, they uh, speak the same language as the community who access the services. So they act like a bridge between um, the services and the community and they understand um, what the service users are going through. And so um, they will use their own strategies to be able to um, get people to engage in services that may not even generally access services. Yeah, I think knowing that there is that gap to be bridged is so hugely important. And I think also I wanted to ask you as a peer harm reduction manager yourself, how do you... Uh, I don't know, I guess create and maintain a really successful living and lived experience workforce, you know, given that often living experience workers will receive lower pay and their pay is also, their work is highly casualised, really emotionally demanding and there can sometimes be a real lack of role clarity. Yeah, Um, so I think it starts with, you know, frameworks and strategies to support peer workers then peer workers need to, um, I guess, be properly funded that has, um, you know, funding tied to their positions for, um, you know, professional development. Um, being able to access external supervision, I think, is really important to work out that sort of, um, that sort of work-life um, sort of balance because as peer workers, we don't actually... Um, have an opportunity to have downtime. It's sort of a 24-7 role for us because when we go home from work, we're still actively engaged in our community and we're not the sort of people that will stop. So I think you've got to have really good support networks. Um, you've got to opportun- offer opportunities. I think um, understanding. I think... Um, Part of policy and procedures when organisations want to develop them for peer workers, um, I think that that's sort of exclusionary and that's discriminatory straight up. So I think, you know, if um, organisations think about using reasonable adjustments that actually work across the workplace, there's not as much of a division. Um, yeah, uh, there's lots more work to be done, um, but ultimately... We need to create a safe space for peers, living experience peers, working in harm reduction, um, so they don't burn out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. And also there needs to be, I think, also an attitude shift in how invaluable living peer workers are and how yeah. important it is for them to be supported because little policy things that maybe a policy officer who is not using drugs may not understand, like, payday <laughs> or just little yes, things yes. like that. Um, yes. And also speaking as someone who has done living experience work in the youth mental health sector, I definitely relate to a lot of what you're saying about, you know, giving a lot of yourself, blending 
they're professional and personal and often dealing with similar issues as the people you work with and it can absolutely burn you out. Uh, I guess how, what, what do boundaries look like in this work when working with the community? Because I, I know that you would also have to navigate really purposeful disclosure. I can understand that would get really tricky. Yeah, yeah, definitely it does. And I think that, um, I think boundaries look different for different people. I know, you know, being that I've, you know, worked in peer roles for 20 years, like, um, for me, my boundaries were around, like, you know, I used to work, live and use in the same community and I realised that that was going to be too much for me. So I moved actually to the other side of Melbourne, um, so I wasn't, you know, bombarded 24-7, even though, you know, your community sort of comes with you. Um, but just having that bit of space, um, for me, I um, wouldn't um, work with my friends. Um, so I would um, refer them to someone else I trusted within my team, um, potentially another peer. Um, or another worker, um, just to sort of maintain that distance and, and not to be seen as um, providing anyone any different, you know, um, service than anyone else. Um, I think that it's really important for peers to come up with their own strategies that work for them. And, um, you know, being from the using community, we've always had to improvise and um, come up with our own strategies and, you know, to be able to sort of do what we do. So I think that it looks different for each other, but I think, um, you know, the project I run, uh, Fuse Initiatives, there's Fuse Network is we have um, a monthly meeting where, you know, it's an opportunity to discuss what's going on in your workplace. Um, uh, you know, we have discussions around things like boundaries and what they look to each other and, and self-care and... Um, and, you know, providing a space where people can just be open and honest. They know that they're not being judged. Uh, they know that they're in a space with everyone else who is in the same position. Um, I think, you know, because uh, there's uh, minimal funding for um, harm reduction living experience peers at the moment, um, there's a lot of organisations that have, might have one-out peers and... Um, Harm Reduction Victoria, we did a consultation and we believe that um, peers shouldn't be one out in an organisation because you're too isolated and you're generally this um, solo voice that gets muffled by all the other noise. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we are moving in a direction towards more acceptable <laughs> harm reduction strategies. Um, you know, even before our previous interview was about the first... Um, you know, fixed pill and drug testing site in Canberra, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, but I know that often, you know, a lot of harm reduction and AOD services can be really stigmatised. And I think in a lot of sectors, living experience workers are often undervalued and underrepresented. And I think I just wanted to touch on uh, how AOD um, and harm reduction and mental health sectors really overlap a lot. And I think often they're in a battle over primary needs and, you know, funding and resources. Mm. And the recent commission into uh, the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system involved recommending the importance of living experience workers and also 
you know, integrated care between AOD and mental health sectors. But however, I, I don't know, I just can't, <laughs> I can't imagine that uh, there's such a significant power imbalance between living experience AOD workers and, you know, facing clinical teams. And often this can mean sitting opposite a clinical team that has perpetrated harm against you as a person that has used drugs. And I, I, I don't know, how, how do you navigate that ongoing power imbalance and modality clash? Yeah, look, and it's a big one. And I think, uh, you know, even a lot of people who think that they don't discriminate, they actually do. And um, so the, you know, living experience peers experience microaggressions on a daily basis. Um, Look, I think that um, the Royal Commission has been really good for living experience peers because we've been sort of, you know, we've... We've all, we've come from um, a bloodborne virus prevention background, and that's where our sort of funding has predominantly been. You know, we've been around for 35 years, um, but uh, lots of you know the other peer workforces didn't even realise sort of that they thought that it was a new thing. Um, but I guess that's because we're um, new to the living and lived experience sort of arena, even though we've always been there. But, look, I think that there is um, absolutely an imbalance between, um, you know, funding and I think that... I mean, I can only hope with... Um, I mean, the department who we've been, you know, doing some really good work with, and I think that they are really understanding and inclusive of um, living experience harm reduction peer workers and I would actually say like mental health peers, family carer peers, AAD recovery peers have been really welcoming to the space um, for um, I guess at a more sort of leadership level and I guess um, working together we can all learn from each other and Look, I really hope that um, that it, you know integrated care works in terms of um, you know the service users being able to get the best services that they can um, that they can get and receive. Um, I think that there needs to be um, a lot of sector change. I think that organisations actually need to be ready and be aware of um, you know hiring a peer is um, it's not just like hiring a worker. Um, we come with um, a whole heap of knowledge and our knowledge comes from our life and the streets and our language. And um, there needs to be a lot of uh, workforce development in terms of the wider sector's clinicians, other workers who do not come from a peer background to understand the benefits um, Open Society Foundation, they've got a, um, a, it's a good guide to hiring people who use drugs. And um, so there's a lot of sort of research uh, from internationally, but um, we need to develop and we are developing those documents specifically within the sort of Victorian sort of um, arena at the moment. Um, you know, we've just recently... Um, been developing, um, you know, a knowledge foundation with research mm-hmm. around, um, you know, the benefit of peers. 
and um, we'll be developing more documents, documents around um, support and supervision for peers, which is really important and not just line management, yep. but, um, you know, actual external supervision where people can talk about, you know, that um, work-life balance and not have um, everything blamed on their drug use because not all drug use is actually bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um we have to remember that people, you know, do drugs for a reason. Um, yeah. We can't just be an after-school special all the time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think just at the end, um, you know, I think it's important. You've spoken to how we can support lived and living experience workers, um, and I think it's important for, our, you know, our listeners to know that it's a huge financial uh, cost uh, that, they save with harm reduction in AOD services and it's really long-standing. There's a lot of evidence behind it and I think what it constantly comes back to is dignity of choice and really yeah. adequate supervision and, you know, well-trained resources for the rest of the workforce as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today, Nadi. I hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you for having me. No um, worries. Yeah. That was Nadia Gavin from Harm Reduction Victoria, who manages the FUSE project, and they spoke to us about supporting peer workers with living experience who work in mainstream Victorial AOD harm reduction services. Thank you. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Michael Stanton, who's the president of Liberty Victoria, who's speaking with us about Victoria's mandatory minimum sentencing regime in light of its recent condemnation by justices on the state's court of appeal. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. No worries, Priya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. Uh, so... Could you begin by giving us a bit of background into the introduction and proliferation of legislation around mandatory sentencing in Victoria and what it means for the judicial process when mandatory sentences are set for a particular offence? Sure. So people might not realise, but mandatory sentencing has been introduced and expanded in Victoria since about 2013. So over the last decade, there's been legislation introduced and uh, 
significant expansion to mandatory sentencing provisions. And one of the problems is that the provisions are incredibly complicated and, and there are about three different kinds of presumptive or mandatory sentencing under the Victorian Sentencing Act. But the first form and the, the one that started the, the model, if you like, or the mechanism uh, is the mandatory setting of a minimum non-parole period unless there is a uh, special reason, what's defined as a special reason, which enables a judicial officer to not send someone to imprisonment if that special reason is made out. Now, that was originally introduced in relation to what was defined as gross violence offences by the Napthine government. But when the Andrews government took power in 2014, rather than rolling them back or um, scaling it back, in fact, there was a large expansion of mandatory sentencing provisions. And um, the, that model of a mandatory minimum sentence was expanded to many other offences, but also significantly the special reasons exception, which was regarded as something that preserved the discretion of the judge's independent umpire, that has been made much more difficult to make out or to satisfy. So in many, many cases now, um, the uh, magistrate or judge's hands are tied in relation to certain uh, offending. Yeah. And I mean, this raises a whole range of issues about, you know, the ability of, of judges to actually... Um, to actually provide appropriate and adequate oversight and decisions on, on these kinds of cases. And Liberty Victoria has raised concerns about groups that are disproportionately affected by mandatory sentencing in Victoria, particularly First Nations people. Um, so last Thursday, we saw Victorian Court of Appeal Justices Chris Maxwell and Terence Forrest also strongly condemn mandatory sentencing with reference to its effects on young people. I'm wondering what have some of the outcomes of the past decade or so of introducing this regime been? And could you speak to its disproportionate effects in practice on specific parts of the community? Certainly. So we know that um, First Nations peoples are disproportionately, grossly disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system and in prisons. So these reforms themselves have to also have a grossly disproportionate effect on First Nations peoples. And... uh, it also has a significant impact, as recognised by the Court of Appeal, on young or youthful offenders because uh, for particularly first-time offenders um, or you know, offenders with very limited uh, criminal histories, to send them to prison we know is counterproductive in relation to their rehabilitation. We know that prison has a criminogenic effect, so uh, not only is it uh, undesirable uh, for the uh, individual, but also it's undesirable from the community's perspective because it actually makes that youthful offender more likely to reoffend upon release. And that was um, the second phase, if you like, of the mandatory sentencing reforms was to greatly restrict the availability of what are called community correction orders for um, offenders. And community correction orders were introduced in part because suspended sentences were abolished. Now, the former government, the Liberal Coalition government, said that they wanted truth in sentencing and suspended sentences weren't really punishment at all, and so introduced this flexible sentencing disposition of a community correction order. The problem is that if someone can't get a community correction order or isn't eligible, the only other sentencing option for uh, many offences is imprisonment. Mm. So um, Parliament has deliberately tied the hands of judges. For some offences now, 
it's just impossible to uh, be sentenced to a community correction order. So um, that that is true mandatory sentencing in the sense that for some offences, the, the punishment just has to be imprisonment. Yeah. But for other offences, again, you need to establish what's called special reasons to be uh, eligible for a community correction order, which could, which is very much in the community's best interest because it focuses on rehabilitation, treatment, things that are, things that will make it more likely that a person will not uh, reoffend. So, um, that, again, that's why it's so troubling that special reasons has been made more and more difficult to establish. So, for example, there used to be a special reasons exception for 18 to 21 year olds who had particular psychosocial Immaturity, so that if you if you met that threshold, you could effectively get a community correction order or not have to be sentenced to imprisonment. But um, Parliament decided to remove that exception in relation to other exceptions that made it much more difficult to make them out in relation to mental illness, uh, in relation to uh, circumstances that are rare and exceptional. Um, so they've, they've made it very very difficult, and in fact. Um, now, in relation to that uh, last uh, provision, in order to make out uh, special reasons, the Court of Appeal has said that it's almost impossible to satisfy. So the irony of all this is that the government, when they first introduced mandatory sentencing provisions, said these special reasons provisions were a way of protecting judicial discretion in sentencing and that that, in fact, was uh, made the reforms compatible with our human rights charter in Victoria, but uh, in lieu of that, what's happened is there's been this gradual erosion of those special reasons, exceptions, to the point now where there really isn't discretion in sentencing at all yeah. uh, for many cases. And I mean, that's extremely concerning, uh, considering, you know, have been thinking about how mandatory sentencing intersects with other aspects of the Victorian criminal legal system, for example, our punitive bail laws, which creates a sort of dragnet effect that captures some of the most vulnerable or disadvantaged members of our community. Um, so considering some of what you've just been speaking uh, sorry, what you've just been speaking about and given that organizations such as Liberty Victoria have long noted the ineffectiveness and potential for harm of this tough on crime approach, do you see any potential for a winding back of mandatory sentencing uh, in Victoria in the near future or what what changes would you like to see? The government's already said that there won't be any significant changes prior to the election in November of this year. So I don't think we, despite the uh, criticism from the Court of Appeal, I don't think there'll be any uh, legislative amendment. In fact, I think there's only 12 sitting days of Parliament, which is quite unbelievable, until that election. So realistically, um, it probably won't be until the next term of um, Parliament, and depending on who forms government, uh, but it is—I mean, it, it is extraordinary that everyone that has actual practical experience at the at the coalface of the criminal justice system knows how broken these uh, reforms are. Mm. Same with the bail laws, and uh, and a lot of these reforms have been in response to what are have been very atypical cases where there's been a lot of uh, significant adverse media attention and often the legislative response has been to create these dragnets where a lot of people are caught up in them where um, because of one or two outliers or where there's been one or two high-profile systems failures and as, oppo- as opposed to improving the system or fixing those particular system failures. So, for example, there was the case of uh, 
Adrian Bailey, uh, who, um, where the parole board wasn't aware that he had breached his parole and before the, the murder of Julian Ma. And equally, there was the, and the parole board at that stage was still operating off paper file. Mm. Then there was the Gargazulis case where a, um, a custody, um, sergeant granted Gargazulis, um, bail. But instead of looking at those, uh, individual systems failures, uh, the government decides to introduce broad, uh, sweeping legislative reform and invariably then you get people that get caught up and exposed to disproportionate sentences, yeah. um, which we all, we all pay for. So we're, we're paying um, over $130,000 per annum per prisoner um, and we know that for youthful offenders, they're going to be more likely to uh, offend if they're sentenced to imprisonment. So it just makes absolutely no sense uh, at, at any sort of social policy level, and it ignores the practical experience of those at the on the front line. Yeah, absolutely, and and it really seems like the the mundane everyday experiences of people getting caught up in this dragnet represent the vast majority of of people that do become subject to this system, where once you're sort of trapped in there. Um, via, you know, issues around the bail laws, around parole, around mandatory sentencing, um, you know, you're sort of tethered to this system um, in, in a way that is, you know, really unproductive for social well-being, for individual well-being. Um, and obviously, as you said, people that are working on the coalface are the ones that, that see that these these reforms aren't working. Um, so just in view of wrapping up, I know Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project is hosting an upcoming event on the use of body-worn cameras by police. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's on the agenda and where people can find out more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Rights Advocacy Project is, is launching its report, Police Panopticon, zooming in on the use of body-worn cameras by Victoria Police on the 26th of July. So that's next Tuesday um, at the Loop Bar in Myers Place in the CBD. And uh, it's an interesting uh, report. Uh, It it focuses on the use of body-worn cameras and particularly when body-worn cameras were introduced that were supposed to provide uh, an accurate record of dealings between police and people, including accused people or suspects, and particularly some of those suspects are from um, very vulnerable parts of the community. And uh, invariably what's happened is that uh, the, the, they haven't been activated mm-hmm. in uh, some cases. Um, and uh, there's issues with disclosure as well of body-worn camera footage. And so... Um, the Rights Advocacy Project have looked at um, the current statutory provisions uh, in the Criminal Procedure Act and the Evidence Act and how they might be able to be amended uh, in order to mm. um, to encourage uh, proper compliance by police with um, the expectations of the community in relation to the activation of body-worn cameras, so to ensure there is an accurate mm-hmm. um, record of dealing. And originally it was supposed to protect um not only the community, but also police. And it was supposed to ensure that there was uh, best evidence in relation to having a a record of Mm -hmm. an interaction. And uh, unfortunately, if 
um, in some cases that body worn camera just hasn't been activated and then there's a complaint made uh, or there's an allegation made of, it, of someone having um, you know, um, committed an offence uh, and uh, it hasn't been captured by the yeah. camera, then um, that raises many questions. And so we're trying to work out how to improve that um, that system, basically. Yeah, and um, I think um, it'll be a really informative session and uh, encourage people to attend, and we'll have information about that in our show notes. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss some of these issues with us and um, really appreciate your expertise on this. No worries, Prayer. Thanks very much. Bye. Excellent. And that was Michael Stanton, President of Liberty Victoria, who spoke with us about Victoria's mandatory minimum sentencing regime in light of its recent condemnation by justices on the state's Court of Appeal. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunjalini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. CR Radio from Fundraiser, 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday, 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism and the future. Zelda Grimshaw from Block Aid Australia. Dr Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall. And Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends Liz Thomas and Maxine Vink. Followed by Sooty Owls. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, capitalism and the future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event. 3CR fundraiser. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. Tram 11 will get you there. Stop 30. $10 solidarity. No one turned away. What's up? 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 What's up?
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now Leela is going to lead us into the next interview. So Priya, last week I received a text message reminder about my mutual obligations appointment. And I say reminder in quotations because really that was the first I'd heard about my appointment. The following afternoon, I made my way down High Street in Preston to a depressing-looking office complex. After alighting the elevator on the second floor without a mishap, I proceeded to wait for my appointment in the empty foyer of what I later learned was the wrong employment service provider. After 15 minutes, a staff member wandered in and asked what I was waiting for and then kindly directed me across the hall to an identical office the right employment service provider. It turned out that even getting through the door for my appointment was quite confusing for me as someone who is able-bodied and from an English-speaking background. This got me thinking about the countless challenges this system must be presenting to other participants on the program. So today I welcome Jeremy, who is an anti-poverty advocate and organiser with the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, to help us unpack these changes to the Job Seeker program. Hi Jeremy, how are you today? Good morning. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry about your story. It sounds like a, an Australian horror story. <laughs> That's right. That's just the beginning. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Firstly, could you break down the points-based activation, activation system, also known as PBAS, a bit more for us? Uh, yeah, sure. So the government has basically updated the old job active system, which listeners uh, might have experience with, which was you know, also very bad, um, and have chosen to what we think uh, is make it worse through this new, I guess, gamified table where uh, participants have to now rack up um, 100 points of activities um, per month um, as part of this points table, and it's gotten quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of attention, and listeners may have, may have seen it. Um, but basically, um, to to receive welfare when people log in um, to the new system, this new Workforce Australia system, um, they're confronted with this table. Um, they're basically um, forced into similar activities um, as before, um, but but it's a lot more it's a lot more stringent and, and, and hard to navigate. And you know we've been trying to build pressure, so the same problems in the old system are carrying over this new points table. So you know people could be doing you know, full-time work for the doll uh, for 25 hours a week, and that only racks them up, you know, 80 points on this new table so they need to scramble to get another 20 points to get their welfare. Um, you know, there's also other, you know, ridiculous uh, activities on there, like starting a new job, 
is apparently only 50 points, only gets you 50 points uh, on the table. So again, while starting a new job, you have to rack up another 50 points um, to get your receipt of welfare. Um, it's just you know an extra you know, ridiculous new system um, for you know the poorest people in the country to have mm. to navigate. Yeah, the um, value assigned to the different categories is quite baffling. And I have to say, I only get one point per hour for being here at 3CR in my job, volunteer role. So if I get, if I do 10 hours um, a week, I'll get 10 whole points. <laughs> anyway. So you stay on the radio constantly for, for <laughs> yeah. what, 100 hours. A hundred hours per Um So during their first appointment, participants go through this self-management assessment where your job provider essentially dictates the number of points you're required to earn during a points period, which is four weeks long. I know this is partially based on an algorithm-determined sorting system, or as Asha Wolf describes it in their 2022 article, the sorting hat of despair. Um, from start to finish, the whole process seems pretty murky. What are your concerns about access to poverty payments lying in the hands of automated sorting systems and contracted job providers? Yeah, no, like, you know, obviously, you know, that puts a huge... Um, not in our, in our stomach, and we're already seeing um, problems with um, the automated system um, governments using. Um, you know, obviously, uh, before all this, uh, government doesn't have a good track record using automated systems, um, especially uh, when it comes to welfare recipients. Like we're still in the hangover of the robo debt debacle. Um, bunch of robo debt victims haven't even gotten their you know payment or compensation yet. And so now we're going into a new system with the same department uh, that hasn't learned uh, its lesson, and there are there are huge issues with, and, and they're already arising. Um, so the way people are getting uh, sorted and put and connected with providers automatedly has already caused massive problems. There was a big story in the Guardian uh, yesterday or the, or the day before. Uh, where someone was automatically put um, into a provider that required them to make a 250-kilometer round trip, um, which they couldn't obviously get to um, very, very easily. Um, we really worry that, you know, because uh, people are going to be, you know, auto- automatedly put through this kind of system, people with, um, you know, uh, very disadvantaged disadvantaged people, people you're sort of talking about earlier, people, uh, maybe English as second language people are going to be classified incorrectly by an algorithm, put in the wrong place, put in the wrong stream, um, and that could require punishment. Like there's so many, you know, different and they're kind of like mind-baffling problems that could arise when you take away that human component. And then there's like the other side um, where... Uh, so people are in the hands of these algorithms, which we know don't work. And then on the other side, their, their lives are in the hands of private providers, which again is another you know, perfect storm where these are people who, uh, under threat of punishment, put people through the activities mm-hmm. basically so they can get like profits for their, for, the, for their companies. So the mix of like their motivations um, and a soulless algorithm um, we, you know, we think that a new perfect storm. That's basically the Workforce Australia system, and we're incredibly worried about um, the harm 
um, that both those things are, get, are going to cause people. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think I just wanted to say that you get no points for actually attending your appointment. So no points received for that one. Um, no, I think... so attending, like attending the appointment is, 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 is an obligation. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. You don't get a point for, uh, for, for doing that. Yeah. And while the point system doesn't officially kick in, um, until next month, um, people do have to and are attending their appointments at the moment um, during this next wave of the plague, which is, you know, fantastic. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think we can agree that this system is no less punitive than the last. Poor people are still being punished by this government. So what can listeners do to fight back against the cruel welfare system, and how can those currently on the job seeker access support uh, navigating their mutual obligations requirements? Yeah, so groups like um, the ASU and, and the Anti-Poverty Centre have been uh, campaigning uh, quite quite publicly against this new system, and I'd advise um, you know, listeners wanting to get involved to um, you know, sign up and, and support um, both groups. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I helped, or we helped all, do, a, do a protest outside um, Tony, Tony Burke's office, um, and we brought a bunch of welfare recipients who uh, didn't want to be punished, uh, by mutual obligations in this new system. Um, sadly, he locked us out of his office. But we're going to continue um, to, to, to beat the drum and fight this new system. Um, at the very least, um, our you know, obviously, you know, ultimately, we want mutual obligations abolished because it's, cr- it's cruel mm. to just make people poor people do this do this stuff for the receipt of you know, mm. the lowest income yeah. support in the in the developed world. But we've been calling on the minister, given those like teething problems. You know, the issue of your story, the issue of people getting sorted incorrectly, just how broken this new digital tool is. We've been calling on Minister Burke to at least suspend um, the mutual, at least suspend suspensions and punishments for the first 90 days, and to listen to us and iron out some of the kinks in the system and the problems we're bringing to him. So we're going to be pushing for that. But yeah, anyone in the system, anyone who fears getting punished, um, who's getting bullied by their provider. Um, yeah, please contact. We'll AW. direct them to you. Uh, we're, we're, here, we're here to help you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy, for speaking today. And no worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and um, I think that's about all we've got time for today on 3CR and really appreciate Jeremy for making the time and all of uh, the information about the show will be in our show notes, so we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.